This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Visit betterhelp.com slash milkshake because honestly, being a human is exhausting. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am Rain Wilson. And I'm Reza Aslan. Yes, you are. And hey, Reza Aslan, how long have we been friends? Uh, let's see. I guess I'm going to say like 2013. So maybe like eight. Wow, fuck. Eight years. Yeah. That's a long time. And you know what uh, occurred to me in thinking about that? We have yet to have a man weekend together. I, I don't know what a man weekend is. You know, like a couple of guys camping out in a tent together. Nothing but the sun on our faces, the wind on our hairy backs. And like Wi-Fi, right? Like, No, man. Not on a man weekend. <laughs> the only Wi-Fi is, is the song of the birds chirping. Just you and me out in the open, in yep. the woods, peeing yep. and pooping. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, is, wait, is, this, is this truly what men do? Come on, let's hit the open road. Come on, let's find a patch of dirt and wrestle in the mud together. For like 14 hours, like real men. Listen, I look, I love nature. I'm not saying I don't love nature, but you got to understand something about immigrants is that we don't understand the whole American obsession with camping because we're like, but you have a home and a bed. <laughs> Why would you sleep outside on the ground? I did that because I had to. Yeah, but this is what men do, okay? They go camping, okay? So embrace it. You sound exactly like a guy who runs a farm with pigs and zonkeys, okay? I, I, on the other hand, you know, I prefer like a nice, comfortable bed. That's all. Well, that's a shame because you know what, uh, Reza, truth be told, when I'm out in nature, I just, I learn a lot about myself. Yeah. Being in nature teaches you about being human. Yeah, I think it can. So I'm going to mark you down for next weekend. <sighs> all right, fine. But, but as long as we bring some toilet paper, because I am not using leaves. So, you know, this is an interesting topic. What, what can nature teach us about being human? And you know what? I think I've got just the perfect person to help us crack this nut. My dear friend and comedic doppelganger, Nick Offerman. Oh, shut up. You don't know Nick Offerman. Yes, I do. No, I you know Nick don't. Offerman. But he's famous and stuff. Yes. The brilliant actor, author, and woodworker is right here. Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec amongst dozens of other brilliant roles. New York Times bestselling author right here, right now. Let's do this. Fun facts. He's from Manuka, Illinois. He has written five semi-autobiographical books. He is married to the comic titan Megan Mullally. Hey, Nick Offerman, this is incredible. Wow. Uh, thank you for coming on Metaphysical Milkshake. My pleasure. It's about time. Can I call you Nick or do I have to it call you Mr. Offerman? Please call me Nick. Okay, thanks. I feel like I feel like we're friends. Yeah, I was talking to Nick the other day. Uh, oh, Nick Offerman. Yeah, yeah and Nick. Um, you know, author of um, "Where the Deer and the Antelope Play." By the way, this is the longest title. How did Dutton let you keep this title? "Where the Deer and the Antelope Play: The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside." They make me do the subtitles. I always. 
I always ask for just the title. Like my earlier titles are like Paddle Your Own Canoe, Gumption. And they all, they're always like, we need the consumer to be spoon-fed what the book is. <laughs> so Nick, welcome to the show. This new book, I have, truth be told, I haven't finished it. I'm about halfway through. Um, and I've- Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thumb through the rest of it, but um, it's incredible. It's so good. Um, I was telling you earlier, I think you're just absolutely hitting your stride as a writer. You're, you've always been great from Paddle Your Own Canoe, your autobiography, to, to Gumption, to the woodworking book, um, all of the different books you've written. But you're finding your voice. You're like the voice of, of like, you're this American male voice of a certain generation who likes to eat, you know, a cheeseburger and <laughs> loves a good babbling brook and also is a big fan of Monty Python. Like you're, you're just square in this certain zeitgeist that you have kind of created yourself. Before we, this isn't even on our list of questions, of approved questions. Before we get going like that, how have you, what, what happened? Did you ever think that you would be a multi-award-winning, best-selling author of all things? No, I mean, I, I went to theater school. I just wanted to get good parts and plays in Chicago. That was my dream, uh, my dream career. And then organically things just, you know, then I uh, began building scenery and uh, I got a little job here and there, you know, then I moved to LA, worked in TV and film. And it it was such a weird thing. It was because from Parks and Recreation, college colleges began to mistakenly invite me to perform my stand-up. <laughs> and, it, and at first I, I had to say, oh, I don't do that. I'm a theater actor. But after a few invitations, I said, wait a second, talk to 2,000 college kids for a very nice uh, paycheck? Yes, please tell Ohio State I'll come do my stand-up. <laughs> So I started writing, you know, stand-up, but I don't write jokes per se, so I, I always call myself a humorist, because I do make people laugh, but not because of my incredible, like, Zach Galifianakis-type wit. It has something more to do with my delivery or my cadence or something. And so then that uh, led to books, and I, I never in a million years dreamed I'd be talking to you guys about my fifth book. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. That's more than Reza. Yeah, I'm, I just turned in my sixth book, so thanks. There's quality and there's quantity. <laughs> Before we go forward, you know, I think folks deserve to know a little bit about our history, um, which when I tell people, it kind of blows their minds. Like you and I used to knock around in all of the same audition rooms and our story is so parallel. It's so in line. I I went to theater school for the same thing. I just wanted to get good parts in New York, you know? And and then I kind of realized, oh, wow, all of these TV actors have done like one sitcom and then they come back and they get cast as Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet at the public. You know, the only way I'm going to get to play Mercutio is if I go to a sitcom. So then I hauled my 
weird little white ass over to LA and we came at around the same time. I was there in 2000. Is that when you showed up? I got here a little earlier, like 97, 98. Okay. And that's when you met and and coupled with Megan Mullally. Yes. Yeah, I spent a couple of years trying to find my ass with both hands, kind of kicking around, uh, figuring out why the hell I moved from the best theater town in the country, Chicago, to uh, the largest collection of actors and, and writers and directors, but really a pretty mediocre theater town because everybody's focused on on the ulterior motive of TV and film here. Um, I'm, I'm, but I'm surprised. I, I would have thought that I had met you a little earlier, but if it was 2000, it's, it's really interesting. We... Uh, when, when an audition would come in and you get the description of the role called the breakdown, uh, I began to be able to discern if I would see you or not. Like if the, <laughs> if the character was a basement dweller or, yep. or quite often like creepy, suspicious guy. Yep. Weird, creepy, offbeat. But yeah, we, uh, we really ran into each other enough that uh, I considered you a friend. Oh, this is a true story. Uh, for the first like three or four weeks of doing this podcast, I thought I was doing it with Nick Offerman. <laughs> it's only about like yeah. second month yeah. in, I was like, oh, oh no, it's Rain Wilson, right? That's a fine compliment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, speaking of, of creepy basement dwellers, I remember in New York, I once auditioned for Tony Randall, you know, the, the famous actor from The Odd Couple. Yeah. yeah. And he was running a theater company in New York and I did my audition and I finished, I worked really hard on it. And I finished, I looked at him and he looked at me and he goes, you should play baby-faced killers. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, you got any baby-faced killer roles? Yeah, I'll take them. And he's like, unfortunately, no. All right, let's talk about the book. It's, it's so interesting. Um, both Reza and I were drawn to this one sentence uh, that you had put in here. And I want to I start with this uh, little niblet of profundity from the Offerman Offerman universe, from the Offerman workshop. We must understand that we are not passive passengers on this mothership earth, but instead we must participate in the journey. Whether that means grabbing an oar and helping to row or feeding the crew or wholly stoning the decks, no idea what that means. Only then will we be able to help steer this venerable vessel away from the shopping mall at slash amazon.com and towards the woods and the meadow and the beck. That's good writing. But this whole um, book was born out of a hike, really, and then a couple other trips, including one you took with your wife, Megan, and your dog. These journeys taken over the last two years and through the pandemic kind of allow a series of, of digressions, and we'll get to some of those digressions uh, coming up. But tell us how this whole thing started. Well, thank you. First of all, you, you've said some very nice things about my writing, and I appreciate it. Um, it's it's something that I work really hard at, and I uh, I can feel the improvement uh, across my books. So it's very gratifying to hear that from you, Smarties. Um, I I've had the idea for this book for a long time. Uh, ever since I became obsessed with the writing of Wendell Berry in the mid '90s. Uh, who's my favorite agrarian writer. He's he's in his 80s. He's a Kentucky farmer, and he's wonderfully prolific. He writes fiction and essays and poetry. And 
there's something about the common sense in all of his writing uh, calling attention to our human ignorance, our, our proclivity to turn a blind eye to our responsibilities uh, as, as, you know, m- members of the natural fellowship of the planet. Uh, we, we have long since given away our agency to corporations and say, you guys, here's my money. You send me electricity, send me uh, running shoes and everything in between. And I assume you're going to be cool, right? Uh, <laughs> about the way that you, <laughs> the, you procure these things. And something just really struck me, uh, sort of seeing my own donkey-like place in, in this churning machinery of consumerism and just realizing, you know, how complicit we all are, no whether you're Ed Begley Jr. or, you know, like the coolest of tree huggers to the, the worst, you know, materialistic, like, yacht uh, driving, cigar smoking, like, music star or something. Everybody is complicit in this system. And uh, I just, I, I don't feel like I have... Uh, you know, I'm not a great fiction writer. I don't have like vast, great ideas. And so what I try to do is take these sensibilities like, like this agrarian, uh, our, our human fallibility in the eyes of the, of agrarianism and get a laugh, uh, from my readers saying, let me, let's just focus on, on this, this particular way in which we're stupid. Um, me included, and if we if we talk about it, maybe we can ask some questions, and maybe we can continue to like link arms and lurch uh, farther towards decency, you know. And by the time we're done, maybe uh, you know we'll use less single-use plastic bottles, or or vote for uh, less voting restriction, or you know whatever. If if I can swing seven people over to to grass-fed, rotationally grazed beef cows, then my job will be done here. One thing, uh, the third part of the book is really fascinating. This is when um, <clears throat> you and your wife, Megan, get an uh, Airstream and and start like rolling across the country. Uh, Rain and I, both huge RV fans. Uh, like RVs. That's, that's my that's my jam. In fact, streaming. Uh, we you know we we kind of rent an RV every year, and so last year we decided we were going to buy uh, an RV, but we decided to buy uh, a forty year old RV. This RV, which was built in nineteen eighty four, literally nineteen eighty four. We were like, we're going to be the cool family. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're going to rebuild this thing. It's going to be so cool. <laughs> we've owned it for a year. I think we've driven it maybe once so far <laughs> and it's been in the shop ever since then did not in any way dampen our love for the RV though no hey folks do you identify as crypto curious why yes if you've thought about entering the world of cryptocurrency but felt a little overwhelmed coinbase makes learning to buy and sell simple i have a coinbase account and i can vouch for it If you've been following the cryptocurrency craze, now is the time to start getting involved. Coinbase makes it quick and easy to start your own portfolio and learn to trade like a pro. And Coinbase also offers a trusted and easy-to-use platform so you can buy, sell, and spend your cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market, 
and make them accessible to everyone. They offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources, and a mobile app so you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people in over 100 countries trust Coinbase with their digital assets. Whether you're looking to diversify, just getting started, or searching for a better way to access crypto markets, start today with Coinbase. For limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash milkshake. Sign up at coinbase.com slash milkshake for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's coinbase.com slash milkshake. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. My wife and I begin basically every morning with our athletic greens. I mean, with so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and, you know, give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Athletic greens gives you, it gives you a lot of things. It gives you greens, you know, like your veggies. It gives you vitamins and it gives you a kind of a clarity and an energy. I love putting it in the morning. I shake it up. It's got a little, little bit of a lemony flavor. It tastes delicious. And um, I just feel better throughout the day. And not in the script, but helps you poop. Wow. This special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients and a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. It supports energy and focus. It aids with gut health and digestion. What did I say? Didn't I just say that? Athletic Greens is lifestyle-friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything, and it tastes great. So join the movement of athletes, life leads, moms, dads, rookies, first-timers, podcasters, and everyone in between. Take ownership of your daily health and focus on the nutritional products that you really need in the simplest manner possible. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash milkshake today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash milkshake and you can take control of your health and give AG1 a try. So what is what is this like, this, this like quintessentially American experience of the RV? You know, there's something, there's something about it. It's like, it's, it's, it's in our blood as Americans. And is it, is it terrible? You're talking about like, saving the earth and making smarter decisions. And here we are talking about giant, buying ginormous three-cylinder uh, gas-guzzling yeah. diesel-spewing monstrosities and driving them through nature. Meanwhile, I'm getting eight miles a gallon on this thing. Exactly. I mean, literally eight miles a gallon. And, <laughs> and I, do, I, do, I am self-effacing about that in the book because uh, we're, that's kind of what I mean. We're all complicit in this way where we're, we're stuck in this system where not only are we, are we hauling RVs, you know, like get your, get yourself to Yosemite uh, and everybody has to take their, you know, their own vehicle and burn all these fossil fuels to do so. And it's, it's part of uh, what I want to point out is that there's, there's, it's not a binary question. I, I talk a lot in the book about how all these conversations require nuance and I think that if if we can start by admitting our human fallibility and saying, of course, we're humans. Like, I, I make mistakes every day. I'm, I'm a shitting, farting, you know, mammal. 
doing my best to like live with empathy and decency and responsibility, but I'm human. I'm going to also like give in to whatever weakness uh, comes up on the wheel that day. And so finding a balance uh, starts with admitting that fallibility. And if we can do that as a society and say, well, yes, of course we had slavery. Of course we had genocide and et cetera and misogyny and homophobia and you name it. Of course we have those things and they're understandable things. They're animal reactions, but we can now recognize that they're wrong, you know, that they're, that they're not right and that we should strive to do better. If we could, there's nothing shameful about any of that. Like, yes, I ate too much pizza and vomited in the bed, honey. Like, I can admit that. It's totally <laughs> wrong, but you can understand. Uh, you got an understanding wife. And so w- with that in mind, I, I want to say, look, yes, we're, we're all the, – the amount of vehicles and firearms in this country is so astonishing and, and bananas, but we all are, are ensconced in it and say, okay – we are coming around to understanding this is terribly wrong. <laughs> let's let's whether we're, we're in our RVs or we're living in a yurt or wherever we're doing, let's focus uh, our attention on solving these problems so that we can still someday go to Yosemite but not burn eight gallons of gas uh, per mile. This love of nature and the outdoors, is this something that you've always had? Did you grow up? with this um, kind of appreciation of the wilderness? I did. I I don't feel like uh, any sort of terrific outdoorsman or outdoors person. Uh, I I mean, my family uh, all grew up on farms and half of them still farm in this little town. And our main thing we do is go fishing. Uh, We spend a lot of time outside, but it's all sort of affordable working class recreation. Uh, each household has a fishing boat. A um, couple of the more action-oriented households also do like water skiing and, you know, uh, snowmobiling and stuff like that. But by and large, uh, I you know, I, I don't feel like um, people sometimes are like, oh, you should get together with Bear grills or or other sort of outdoor survivalist types. And I say, no, I'm a, I'm a soft-ass actor living in Los Angeles. And I love to walk in the woods and like look at a tree. I I I couldn't tell you uh, which herbs we should eat to survive, you know. Like, but but I would love to go sit and and find out with you. Um, so I just always grew. I don't know something about my placid demeanor is fueled by uh, being able to just go for a walk and and take in whatever the ecosystem has to offer. There's a lot of themes that are interwoven through this story that starts with this very simple hike of you and Jeff Tweedy from the band Wilco and George Saunders, the, you know, incredible American uh, author, and your shared love of taking these walks in the woods. This is kind of the springboard for the story. And you 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 veer off. I love the way you write this because you veer off on all of these digressions that kind of it, it's almost stream of consciousness. Like I'm walking down the trail and I'm thinking about the Blackfeet Indians that used to walk down this same trail at Glacier National Monument. But, you know, now we have all these Native American mascots and and people are very upset. And then you kind of go down that trail. But 
there is one topic that you dig into uh, with great gusto uh, throughout the book, especially in the first third, and that is bears. And as you know, I have a very special connection to bears. Um, I have for a very long time, both both personally and professionally. Nick, you are an you have become an expert on bears. What have you learned about bears? The main thing I learned in researching and, and living the experiences that became this book is how to tell the difference between black bears and grizzly bears. Um, and there's a few different techniques by which you can you can make this discernment. Sure. Um, Fill us in, please. My favorite was uh, if, if you see a bear, um, climb up a tree to get a, a, a good, safe look at it and, and then watch its behavior. Uh, if it... Um, if it climbs up the tree and gets you, it's a black bear. But if it stays on the ground and shakes the tree until you fall out of it, then it's a grizzly. Okay. Very good advice. One of the digressions you go into in the book, which I just loved and I got so much out of reading, um, was our incredible disconnection from the food chain. You want to talk about that theme a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's what really hooked me in my my whole love of the agrarian mindset is uh, I come from a farming family. And when I first was reading Wendell Berry, it's, it's the uh, it's the dignity that he that he lends to the simple hard work that human beings do to sustain ourselves and, and our loved ones. Like he wrote there's one passage in a novel where he wrote about a farmer mending a fence and he, and he wrote sort of uh so uh, elegiacly is that how you pronounce that word yes it's not elegically i always pronounce it elegically either one it was gorgeous uh it was like he was describing a, a a production of swan lake and it was about this guy mending his fence and and it it brought me to tears because i realized oh this guy is like making heroes of regular humans, of people who just cook and like, ra- you know, raise kids and like grow a garden and maintain their buildings, etc. And what struck me was then thinking about where our food used to come from and reading the books of Michael Pollan as well, uh, where we where we begin to learn where all of our f- food is sourced nowadays, uh, which is usually some sort of of corporate channel. So much of it is corn based and so much of it is processed. And I realized, holy cow, we used to at least make real food. You know, we used to know where our food came from. It had necessarily had to be local because of refrigeration, but whether it was your meat, your dairy, your produce, your fish, your fruit and vegetables, all of it, you had some idea of what these actual foods were and quite often where they came from or who who produced them. And nowadays, even those of us that are as healthy-minded as possible, you're still really hard-pressed to discover who's who's growing your food, who's creating it. And that disconnect is so bizarre because we've handed our agency to corporations, well, to our government, uh, or to corporations, which is kind of a redundant statement. And we give them, we have given them tacit permission to make our food in a way that is not 
mainly concerned with our health. That's what knocked me over when I realized corporations have been lobbying for decades for permission to make our food less healthy so they can make more profit. I was like, wait a second. I understand doing that with like an automobile or a basketball, but you shouldn't be able to make your sandwich worse for me so that you make money and, and, and at the cost of my health and my family's health. And so that's, that's what really, that's the gas in my motor with this whole topic is, is that self, self, respecting adults, how can we not maintain a knowledge of where our food is coming from? Who is, who is, uh, raising our food and thereby, how are they treating the planet? How are they treating our resources? And then it's, you know, when you think about it in that way, it's connected to everything that we produce as a species. Uh, and so suddenly you're in the midst of, of the environmental conundrum of like, how, how are we so egregiously misusing this planet and her treasures? Even the, uh, the big agro influenced the food pyramid, right? And that's been documented yeah. that we grew up with this food pyramid and the bottom was like grains, you know, it's like, Oh, wheat and soy and, um, and, and whatnot. And, and, and actually grains are not so good for you, especially if you're just having pasta and bread all the time. And lo and behold, we've got an obesity epidemic. I was just thinking as you were talking about the food chain stuff, I mean, are you a hunter, Nick? Do you hunt? I don't, I, but I am a fisherman and I, I pride myself in cleaning my own fish. It's, you know, something we've done uh, as, as a, an affordable sustainability practice. Like my mm -hmm. family freezes, we catch enough fish to freeze and eat all year. And there's a, a couple uncles that hunt. Um, and I admire hunters that hunt to feed their families or, or mm -hmm. hunt to cull, you know, the deer population on their ranch or what have you. There, there are healthy, I think, admirable ways to hunt and then I despise trophy hunting. I just, mm -hmm. you know, like anything, there are ways to do it that are commendable and there are ways that, that are only creating waste. And of course, the, the wasteful ways are abhorrent. When you were writing about, <clears throat> you know, our relationship to nature, I was thinking to myself, how much of the American identity has been forged precisely through that kind of early European encounter with the wilderness, I, I remember as clear as day the first time that I saw Niagara Falls, for instance, I thought to myself, can you imagine like Lewis and Clark making a left turn and, and ending up at this thing? Like how crazy that experience would be for all these Europeans, all these Puritans, you know, who came from this very urbanized, industrialized Europe. They come to quote unquote, the new world. And this place must look like some kind of magical forest to them. I mean, the entire kind of encounter of these white settlers with this kind of unaltered nature, this the you know the 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 land of God. This was the d d defining American experience. And then at the same time, what I find really fascinating about it is that they they encounter it with absolute awe, and then. Their first thought is, let's cut it all down. Let's like, yeah. let's just exploit the shit out of all of this. 
uh, I, I read this uh, article recently that uh, the redwoods, right? So imagine, imagine these Europeans setting eyes on a redwood for the first time uh, and being just absolutely, I mean, you know, this is, this is the, the glory of God. Uh, 95% of the redwood were logged by the, the first Europeans who settled in California. So well done. And, and that then becomes kind of the story of America's relationship to nature in a way that we define ourselves in sort of rugged individualism. You know, we are, we are the, the, the people that, that tamed, tamed the wild land, the new world. But at the same time, we almost instantly exploited it to our advantage. And we're, we're still kind of, we still do that, right? That's still sort of the way that we think about uh, our relationship to the natural world. Absolutely. I mean, you, you uh, make a great point that we established this attitude of dominion over nature, that uh, all of nature exists for us to use and, and dispose of as we see fit. And it also fits into the manifest destiny policy of our country, where not only the forests and the coal and the oceans and all of the natural resources, but also the Native American tribes. Like, mm -hmm. that's also part of nature that we said, you know what? The the African uh, population, we said, we will use this as we see fit because we have a book that was inspired by our God that says we deserve all this. And we're still very much trying to back ourselves out of that, you know, idiotic fallacy. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> Like so much of our country, you know, patriotism and uh, na nationalism that says like, of course, we're the greatest country because we kill shit better than anybody else. And when when you look at it that way, it's for me anyway, it's easy to say, OK, hang on a second. The sort of rah, rah patriotism I grew up with suddenly doesn't feel so clean. Mm -hmm. um, maybe what what if no country was the best at killing each other? What if our country was the best at helping each other? What would, what would that be like? <laughs> Very well said, Nick. You know, one of the things I've just always admired about you, Nick, is, and I kind of look at you in a certain, with a certain measure of awe, because you're such a genius actor, but you have this wood shop and you're able to make a canoe and you're <laughs> able to, you made my table. You made my, literally my dining room table that we eat off of every night about 12 years ago. And um, I, I'm a, I can't make anything. I'm, a, I'm astonished at that. And plus you're a better writer than I am. So I, I just don't stack up. But the point I'm getting to is you, you walk this incredible line with your masculinity because at the same time as you're unabashedly um, a, a meat-eating man's man, fisherman, canoe builder, you're so self-deprecating too and are constantly questioning kind of the role of masculinity in all this. Because, you know, like Reza said, you know, hey, look, there's redwoods. Let's chop them down and make, make a buck off of them. Um, you know, and that goes hand in hand with like a real man would chop them down and make a buck out of them because that's <laughs> what men do. So conquering nature, masculinity, you know, you you have such insight in this. You walk this fine line between being this kind of brute and you're also, part of you is a tea-sipping, 
you know, chamomile tea sipping Birkenstock wearing snowflake. <laughs> uh, on on this show, we've had several conversations about masculinity, but tell us, like, through this journey and previous journeys, how's your journey as a as a white cisgendered, you know, uh, male? How has it uh, evolved over the years, especially now in your relationship to nature? It's interesting. I mean, I grew up very much. I was an athlete. You know, I uh, I grew up in a working class family. So I had all the messaging of, uh, of conventional in the seventies and eighties masculinity and, you know, uh, conventional like, uh, cis relationships. Um, and I always felt, you know, uh, I don't know. I didn't fit well into that, that exact paradigm which is first what led me, I think, to become a theater actor um, and, and sort of explore, like, why does my little conservative town feel so strange? Everyone's very nice, by and large. With There's a lot of great values here. But then at the same time, once I got out into the world and I said, oh, okay, but it's a calcified super conservative, like white Christian town. And so long ago, they are, they established no people of color, no people that aren't straight, et cetera, and so on. And so uh, I, it kind of took me by surprise eventually when I started getting any visibility uh, as an actor and I got accused uh, pretty quickly of being masculine. Um <laughs> Or, or sometimes even macho. And I was like, wow, that, what? <laughs> where, are you, where are you getting that? I think it's the voice, Nick. Well, it's the voice. It's the mustache when I have it. The plaid. And I am, I understand in hindsight, but, but what it pointed out immediately was how superficial that estimation mm -hmm. was. I was like, oh no, I'm a total, like, I don't know, weird I don't know. I don't feel like a, a badass man. Um, I can lift heavy things and I can, I can swing an ax and, but that, I don't think that's like, if you think that's what makes you manly, I think that's a fallacy. Uh, and it was interesting because then I began to explore it and ask the question because suddenly I had a platform and I had a following of, of some sort and I said, you know, I think what, what you're after, I don't think you, there's any need to put a gender on it. Um, whether we're talking about my wood shop or my love of like grilling meat or what, whatever, there are men and women and uh, gender nonconforming people who love to do all of those things. I love to build a house out of wood with my hands and my strength. I also love to sew a button daintily onto my boxer shorts and they, they feel equally triumphant to me. They've all are human beings using our ingenuity to miraculously make a, a beef Wellington. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't care, you know, what you're carrying in your jeans or what your sexual identity is. We all should get to, to love anything like that. And I, I feel like anybody who makes a lot of noise about masculinity, which in this day and age often takes the shape of like working out 
or virility, like I take take my pills to make you virile. Um, or there's even, you know, Josh Hawley, a shameful politician right now, is somehow accusing the liberals of uh, undercutting the nation's masculinity. All of those things just drip for me with insecurity. Um, it's people who are terribly frightened that they're not living up to this these superficial uh, stereotypes that they somehow have been taught. Um, when really, again, I I always go back to like I'm just a shitting like clumsy mammal. Uh, and I've found my niche of like, okay, here's the things I can do well enough to get paid and that buys us food and a house. And so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, but I am centuries past needing to like draw down a sword on somebody or like, you know, <laughs> so win any part of my life with, with like my strength or my virility, um, I think that's dumb, and I and I think that that's um, that is a mask that makes it hard for us to actually communicate openly with with vulnerability. How does this relate to uh, a modern American take on our relationship with nature? Because hasn't this relationship with nature been just so corrupted by these faulty ideas of masculinity? Absolutely. I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with the manifest destiny or or man's dominion over nature, which is a Christian sensibility mm-hmm. that we've been taught, uh, which which basically gives the, you know, the people lining their coffers with profits, gives them permission to exploit our resources. You know, we uh, you see a forest, you see a mountain full of coal we will fuck that mountain. <laughs> we will we will rip its skirt off and have our way, uh, you know, until we have consumed every last nugget of coal or what have you. And I, I mean, you know, uh, all of the all of the greatest writing that I've enjoyed always leans towards uh, a matriarchal sensibility. Mother Earth, Gaia herself, you know, is. Uh, all about birth and and harvest, you know, and and uh, the renewal of the seasons and and death and decay. It's all it's all a much more feminine uh, structure, and I and I think that you know that the masculine approach is is desperately trying to maintain power where we shouldn't. The fundamental message of your book is that um, it's important for humans to commune with nature. And obviously, like, we're in a situation now where humans and Americans especially are becoming more and more removed, you know, from nature, more and more removed from the outdoors in in general. And there's, like, a, a very serious consequence to this. And I'm not just talking about metaphysical consequences or, like, spiritual consequences. Those are Those are true. But I mean, like actual physical consequences. Um, the the benefits that that you know nature has on our health and our well being have been exhaustively documented. Being in nature decreases stress. 
been a number of uh, studies that show just even a 20-minute walk uh, in nature reduces stress, significantly lowers heart rates. Uh, being in nature makes you happier. There's literally scientific studies that have showed that uh, a brief walk through nature uh, allows you to experience le less anxiety, less rumination. Uh, it, it instills you with more positive emotions. Being in nature relieves uh, attention fatigue. It increases creativity. Mm. It, uh, it actually, this is actually true. There's a series of, of experiments published in 2014 that showed that being in nature helps you be kind and generous. Wow. <laughs> so there are these like very real, very immediate health and well-being benefits to, uh, you know, the experience of nature. But fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we're becoming more distant, you know, from nature. Uh, America is continuing to sort of shift into a more like industrialized, more urban environment. So I guess my, my question is like, what what does this mean for the future of humanity if we continue down this road? And like, how how can we reverse that? How can we how can we create you know a generation of of people who are who are just better stewards of the environment? That's a huge question. Um, fix I, us, uh, fix us, Nick Offerman. You got four minutes. I mean, I uh, I, th I think this book should do it. Uh, <laughs> That's it. There you go. I I'm assume that they're passing it around at the at the COP twenty six in Glasgow right now. <laughs> I I feel like the answer to that question is uh, I don't know. That's m my objective. Uh, in, in wrapped in this in this humorous, multicolored book, is to sort of wake everyone up including myself, uh, to the reminder that we're suckers, that uh, we've allowed ourselves to lapse into consumerism. And, and, if, and if the you know, money-making corporations, if, if the billionaires have their way, will eventually just always remain in our pods and everything that we need will order by pressing buttons and, the, and it will all be provided by, uh, by these companies. And the thing, what you're saying, uh, the thing I love about getting outside, wherever it is, is it's also free. Um, it's a way that you can live. It's it's meditative. Uh, you you are not harming anything. So whether you're hiking all day or just going for a 20 minute walk or whatever it is, that's time that you're not consuming. It's time that you're not destroying anything. You're not. I mean, I think there's a reason that it, that it makes us happy is because we're not doing anything negative to ourselves, hmm. to the planet, or or to our our fellow humans. You know, that reminds me of a story. We went to visit the Great Smoky Mountains um, because my wife's grandfather, when he was alive, he was a precious human being. He entered a contest from Pepperidge Farm Cookies about national parks and how Aww. much he loved national parks and which I think he wrote an essay on which national park he wanted to visit. And he won it to the Great Smokies. So the family got a trip to the Great Smokies, courtesy of Pepperidge Farm. As we were going around the Great Smoky Mountains, and this is a, a very completely true, not made up story in the slightest, there were uh, driving roads through the Great Smokies and places you could park and you could walk. It was 
not as like rough as Glacier or North Cascades. It was, you know, it's a, it's a bit more um, uh, cultivated uh, as far as national parks go. But at every one of these places where there were trailheads, there were signs that said, nature awaits beautiful trails ahead. You don't just have to drive. <laughs> Think about parking and, and taking a walk. And there were signs literally at a national park urging people to please park your car. Get out of your fucking car. And walk around in the nature. You don't have to drive around the nature. You can walk around <laughs> the nature. And I think about the planning meetings. You know, the rangers like, okay, how are we going to get, you know, Joe Smith out of his car? How about a sign? How about a sign saying, hey, why not park your car and take a walk? Yeah, that's a great idea. But, um... I think that just hits hits your idea there square on the head. Edward Abbey, who was a classmate of of Wendell Berry's, uh, famously in, in his book Desert Solitaire, talks about how um, he desperately wanted in in the parks of Utah. He wanted them not to put roads in. You know, he said, "You you got. I understand that you have to drive to the park, but but." Don't put roads in because exactly that's what's going to happen. People are going to turn it into an amusement park where you just drive through and, and maybe a bear will come up to your car. Well, Nick Offerman, this has been such an enlightening conversation. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your love of nature with us. Um, yeah, we, we love the book. And in your incredible fifth book here, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, with the extremely, incredibly, almost impossibly handsome Nick Offerman <laughs> yeah, on the cover. That is, an, uh, that is, I would say, an impossibly handsome illustration of Nick Offerman. Very chiseled. Thank you. But listen, every, every show, Nick, on Metaphysical Milkshake, you've got to know this. We end the show with a lightning round. Boom, cue lightning. Life's biggest possible questions. What is America? Our last best hope. What's something you could change about yourself if you could? Uh, less gassy. <laughs> what is one eye-opening experience every single person should have? Um, go to a prison and talk to uh, someone convicted of murder. If you could be mauled by any bear, what bear would you be mauled by? Um, Merlin Olson. Hmm, <laughs> hmm. He was a handsome bear. Yeah. <laughs> if you could have coffee or a beer with a 19-year-old Nick Offerman, what would you advise him? That one's always tough, but it's a lightning round. So um, I would say you have everything you need already. What happens to us after we die? Hopefully uh, we, we, you know, uh, decompose beautifully and... and uh, continue this beautiful dance. I'm, I'm hoping to become a largemouth bass myself. Two men face-to-face -face with broadswords in a fight who would win. George Saunders, Jeff Tweedy. Ah, boy. I, I, I feel like... I love that all of the questions <laughs> that we've thrown out about the universe. This is the one that stumped you. <laughs> this is the one. This is the, this is the one. I mean, Tweedy can, you know, he can handle an axe. Hey, he can, yes. but I think I think George. I think George. Uh, he he's secretly like he he has uh, deep uh, nimble reserves. And then 
Finally, what is your life's big question? Am I, am I giving more than I'm taking? I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. And if you were, that would be a good thing? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm after is uh, emulating the selflessness of my mom and dad. Um, hmm. I, I aim for a life of service. That's beautiful, Nick. And these books are a service and your writing is all of your work. Uh, it's really inspiring. As always, we've been we've been chatting, whether it's in an audition room 20 years ago or um, now on a podcast. Uh, just a pleasure and a joy and a delight. And um, you're an American icon and um, God bless you. Well, I appreciate it. I, I really am grateful for the work you two do. And I'm grateful we can have this conversation because that's the goal. We can never stop having the conversation because we'll always keep screwing things up. So uh, I'll look forward to next time. Thank you, Nick. Where the deer and the antelope play, folks. Get your hands on it. Bye, guys. Thank you. Reza, what do you think? Pretty inspiring, right? I was that was kind of inspiring. I, I sort of I sort of want to be like Nick Offerman. I wanna I wanna make a canoe. You should definitely make a canoe. You know, you know what you could make a canoe out of? Hmm. You can print out all the negative tweets and hate comments about you online uh, and then make a canoe out mold, of that. Mold them together into a canoe shape. Yeah. And just pray that it's waterproof. Then it's win-win. <laughs> I will say this. Yeah. I've thought about it. That conversation with Nick. I've changed my mind. I want to go camping with you. I want to do the man weekend. Man weekend. No toilet paper. Just me, you, and the wilderness. And the mud wrestling. We get to do the mud wrestling. <laughs> we'll get. We'll we'll do some mud wrestling just for we you. We get to feel the wind and the hair on our backs. <laughs> I do have a lot of hair on my back, so yeah, I think I think that'll work. I only have. I have like twenty seven. But man, when they're when they're stirred up, I I just I feel alive for the very first time. Uh, what about you, uh, metaphysical milkshake listeners? Do you have hair on your backs? That's not the question. I meant to say, uh, what is your experience with nature? I mean, do you have a great story about hiking? Did did you did you uh, listen to what we were saying about the way that uh, nature can make you happier and kinder and more generous? Do you have a story like that, or maybe even a, a horror story about nature? We'll 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 listen to those. We we like all the stories. We would love to hear your life's big questions. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Please find us on social at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson on Twitter at Meta Milk Podcast and on Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. Follow us, please. Retweet us, repost us. Please comment and let us know your life's big questions. We may explore them on a future episode. Milkshakers, as you know, when you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and you ask some big, fascinating question, and if we find it to be interesting enough, we ask you to come on the show and ask us personally and we have a milkshaker here with us, Victor from Glasgow, our very first Glaswegian. Yes. Victor, thanks for coming on the show. What's your question? This is a question that's, that's kind of come out of my own experience of traveling all over the States, and my wife is American as well. And um, I, wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to ask, what, what is it particularly with, do you guys think, with, with white Americans particularly, that there seems to be a a blindness when it comes to American patriotism compared to the same kind of stuff that goes on 
in regimes around the world, like North Korea, etc., because there is a, a large degree of brainwashing in the American patriotism that we don't have here in the UK yeah. at all. We're, we're, quite, we're quite cynical towards our governments and stuff. If we don't like them after a while, we're just like, see, uh, you know, bye. But, but in the, you know, the States is very sort of romantic and the flag and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, and I have, I have noticed that if, if you have a conversation, not everybody, but you have a conversation with some white folks regarding that stuff, it's like they, they can't see it. They just cannot see it. But yet you compare, you know, the, the stuff that goes on in the States to North Korea or to any of the these places around the world who have dictators. It's the same kind of brainwashing, if I can put it that way. Yeah. In other words, uh, there's a very fine line between patriotism and fascism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, do you think, Victor, there can be kind of a a healthy pride and love for one's country yeah I, th- I think there can but i think that i think as soon as any country begins to believe that it's the best in the world or whatever and, and that's exactly that's exactly what the british empire did you know believed it was the best in yep. the world and, and it, you know look what it did <laughs> so I, th- I think that's that's what it turns from being healthy to being you know fascist i guess by the way, it's not just a right-wing trend here in the United States. You see it on the left wing as well, too. This like knee-jerk idea about how somehow the United States is the greatest country in the world. There is, as I have said repeatedly on this show, there are only two, literally only two major categories in which the United States ranks first, military and economy. And that is literally it. We're not first in press freedoms. We're not first in democracy. We're not first in religious freedoms. You know, so this idea, you know, I think a lot of it is is fantasizing. But yeah. here's kind of the, the complexity of it, right? Which is that there is something unique about the United States in that it is a very new nation state. And it, unlike the sort of nation states of Europe, where the very concept of nationality arose, the United States um, never had the kind of uh, ethnic homogeneity that gave birth to the European nation state in the first place, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. We don't have a—the a, the, the founding of this country did not come through uh, ethnic homogeneity or religious homogeneity, you know— uh, wide range of different Protestant denominations and Catholics who settled here, you know, early on. There wasn't even linguistic unanimity, right? Because people came from all over Europe, spoke all kinds of different languages. And so the founding of this country required the invention of brand new symbols to rally around, you know, the flag uh, and this kind of you know, divine, you know, manifest that, you know, we, that Americans were, were, um, you know, pursuing and creating this country. And then add to that all the kind of religious patina that was um, settled over this, the founding of this country. You know, the fact that, you know, we had people who were fleeing religious persecution and who came here, the, the rhetoric about America being the new Israel. This is the new chosen land. You know, God created this land for these religious groups. So you you marry those two things together, 
the invention of brand new symbols to rally around because we're not ethnically, religiously, uh, or racially, or linguistic, linguistically, um, you know, homogeneous, 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 homogeneous. You've been saying that word a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I've weird. never even heard it before. You know, you say it a few times and then suddenly you're like, is that even a word? Homogeneity, I think is a, is a lovely word. Anyway, I might take it as my DJ name, DJ homogeneity. <laughs> I thought it was so interesting. I went to Europe when I was really young and, and I went to um, the Netherlands and I was like, oh, so what's your family? A uh, Dutch. Yeah, but on your mom's side, like they're Dutch. What about on your dad's side? Yeah, they're Dutch. But and your wife? Yeah, her her family's Dutch. So there is zero zero melting pot. Uh, in that does not happen here. Yeah, we're, everyone's a bunch of mutts. Here, you know, <laughs> I was in the Netherlands uh, some time ago, and I was talking to some Dutch friends, and I don't even remember how this came up, but we were like blah 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 blah, and I said something about the Pledge of Allegiance, and they said, "I'm sorry, the what?" And I said, "Oh." Um, every single morning in every classroom <laughs> in the entire United States of America, school children stand up as one, face the flag, put their hand over their chest and recite these words. And I recited the Pledge of Allegiance and their brains exploded. They were mm -hmm. like, what the fuck kind of crazy Nazi fascism is it, are you, they couldn't believe it. It's pure indoctrination, yeah. The, th the thing is as well, you know, being completely fair and honest about all as well, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, that we would be singing God Save the Queen and all that, and, and there's, a, there's actually a verse at the end of God Save the Queen that is no longer sung that basically says in it that, that we're basically bathing in the blood of the Scots. Seriously? Seriously, if you look up the, the original lyrics for God Save the Queen, it's in there. It's no longer sung for obvious reasons, but it's in there. Well, I think, you know, Reza's talked about this before, but, you know, the nation state, the idea of a nation state is a pretty recent invention in, in hum humankind. And I think, you know, eventually we're going to have to move to kind of pride, glory, um, patriotism on uh, the human race on planet Earth. And I know that's a very, that's a very Baha'i point of view that's, what we're all about. But um, uh, Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith says, glory not in this, that you love your country, glory that you, that you love humanity. And uh, that's where we're going to have to move. Uh, there might be a handful of really tragic and terrible wars on the way before we're actually at that point. Meanwhile, fuck Edinburgh! Yeah, Google our school. Now that that's a kind of patriotism, a city patriotism and pride that we can get behind. Yeah, absolutely, so I'm a complete hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Victor, will you do everybody a favor and will you just say the phrase "They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom." <laughs> okay. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was terrible. Victor, thank you so much. No problem. Folks, as you know, uh, please like us, rate us, review us uh, on Apple Podcasts. If you leave a fascinating and lovely question, we would love to bring you on the show. Unless you're from Edinburgh. So follow us and find us on social at Reza Aslan, at Rain Wilson, and on Twitter at Meta Milk Podcast and Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know your life's big questions, and we would love to explore them on a future episode. We love you. Thank you, Victor. Thanks for coming by.
please don't forget to follow, rate, and review Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And of course, you can always subscribe to the Metaphysical Milkshake YouTube channel and watch our full episodes every week. If you watch today's episode on the YouTube channel, you can see that Nick Offerman, for some reason, was doing his podcast from what I imagine is a princess's bedroom. Did you I think notice it was. that? Either way, we will see you next week uh, when we have a brand new episode of Metaphysical Milkshake. See you next week, Rain. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick Demaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold and audio mixed by Joshua Harris. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. The best bear advice uh, I got when I was camping was a ranger who said, uh, look, if you see a bear, you should just lie down. And I was like, well but that seems dangerous. It's like, oh no, he's gonna, he's gonna eat you. He's gonna probably kill you, but you're better off just lying down. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.